Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Tennis fans to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vilander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will welcome everybody to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Our featured superstar is the great Mats Vlander, winner of seven singles and one doubles major championship. That happened to be Wimbledon, which is a tournament we are going to be discussing tonight. We'll also be joined by two-time Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine a little bit later in the show. But, Matt, it's great to get together at this time, which is the transition between the clay court season and the grass court season. Now, back when you were doing your thing, it was kind of a short stay between the French and Wimbledon. And it seemed like to me that if you made it to the finals in Paris, you were kind of a sitting duck. At Wimbledon, I remember it happened to a few guys, but I don't remember your results in 82, 85, and 88 when you won the French, or even the other years when you made the final of the French. How difficult was it for you once you got to England? Andy, great to be with you. Yeah, uh, it was really tough. It was two weeks, which doesn't seem to be a, a whole lot shorter than three weeks. But uh, with two weeks, Queens, the tournament started the Monday after the men's final at the French Open. So if you did well, I got to the final. That was really hard. Uh, of course, there weren't uh, any other grass court tournaments in my day. There wasn't even Halle in Germany. But all these other tournaments in Hartogenbosch and Stuttgart. And this week, they're in Eastbourne. I mean, they, they have opportunities now, so for us, um, literally, you got to London a couple of days after the French Open was finished, and then you're scrambling around and trying to get a grass court at one of the private clubs in London uh, because the Aurangi practice courts at Wimbledon were not good at all in those days. But of course, the courts at Wimbledon were great. So you never really got to play on a proper tennis court until uh, Wimbledon started or the day before, if you got lucky to be scheduled on center or number one court. But so it was tough. I think all of us, um, we suffered tremendously. I think Bjorn Borg was the only one that figured it out. Uh, he won the finals at Wimbledon, I believe, five times, and he has won the French Open four times. Unreal. Today, yes, there is a season. I've been trying to keep up with everything, Andy. I've been watching pretty much every grass court match that I've been uh, able to on the tennis channel. I, I, I appreciate uh, the grass court season now because it gives the guys uh, and the women a, a chance to actually get into shape, like someone like Iga Schwantek, for example. That being said, Matt, it does seem great for the players. It doesn't seem as good for the fans because I find myself 
it's difficult for me to do what you just described, which is to sit down and watch every grass court tournament at the same Queens used to really mean something like that was, that was kind of a big tournament. I remember, you know, Leif Shiras getting to the finals, I believe one year and playing John McEnroe. And that's kind of where Boris Becker kind of uh, unveiled what he was going to eventually unveil at Wimbledon, uh, which was that, that uh, grass court, uh, you know, supremacy that, that we first saw him flash at Queens. And now there's just so many tournaments that it seems like for the fans, it's difficult to keep up. And it just seems like when you turn on the TV, you're watching a bunch of guys practice on grass before Wimbledon. Yeah, no, definitely. There's a lot of tennis. And uh, to be honest, um, the the crowds have been great at all, all the tournaments. So it's not like they're just putting on a tournament just to give the guys and the women uh, match practice. But, but I mean, it's interesting. Stefan Tsitsipas is playing in Mallorca this week. So you would think if he goes gets far there, then suddenly he's in trouble for Wimbledon a little bit. But it just seems like playing matches on grass. And I remember that is such a big difference from practicing. And I think that's why they're all doing it. Uh, of course, Novak Djokovic chooses not to play anything and that seems to work for him. Um, but watching Carlos Alcaraz in Queens, I think that was great. He could have lost in the first round to, to Artur Rinderknecht, who came out and served bombs, didn't allow Carlos to play at all. Real old-style grass court tennis. He lost a set, and then suddenly he got going. And so I think for him, it was really, really valuable to to play that many matches at Queens and, of course, win it. So uh, I think it's great. Courts look really good everywhere. Uh, the only thing that I'm a little confused about, Andy, is if you now, if you do have a great tournament, um, let's say in Queens or in Mallorca, then you play on a green grass court and then it gets worn out and then more worn out. And by the time you get to the finals, it's really worn out. Now you're going back to the Wimbledon tennis courts. They are pristine green for the first week. So there is still an adjustment to be made once you play on those courts for sure. That being said, I, one of the things that I do enjoy about the grass court tennis is the way the grass really pops off of your television screen. And you it's kind of like watching the Masters or watching one of the, you know, the great golf tournaments. And so now you're seeing this, this bright green grass. Now, one of the things that I associate with bright green grass is slickness. And when you talk about Novak Djokovic not maybe playing in the tournaments leading up to Wimbledon. It almost reminds me of like Tom Brady not playing in the preseason. Just put that guy in bubble wrap and make sure that he comes into Wimbledon healthy. And so is there that concern for some of the top players that some of these beautiful grass courts that you just alluded to could also be a little on the slick side and who needs to pull a hammy or a groin or something when suddenly Wimbledon is at risk if you do so. No, absolutely. And it's, I mean, when the, when the courts are really green and really fresh, at least there is a, there's consistent footing. You know that it's all going to be really slippery uh, and and you, you're careful. But these days I believe uh, that the courts are playing a little, little bit slower when they're really green, although the bounce is a little bit lower. Uh, and again, in our day, uh, it was the other way around. It was much faster the first week. And then when it got burnt out, then suddenly uh, it, it was like playing on a slippery hard court and sometimes even on the clay court. Uh, but for someone like Novak Djokovic, you would think that the draw makes a little bit of a difference, more of a difference at Wimbledon for someone like Novak, who ha- who's not going to play any matches most probably, unless... You know, an exhibition pops up for him somewhere in London. So I think for Novak, the most dangerous thing, Andy, is when you start playing in the second week and you're running in the middle and and you're pushing 
off and you're doing all right. And then suddenly you put your right foot outside the doubles alley out to your forehand. And now you're on green grass. Your left foot is on a, a burnt grass, which is literally clay. And now you've got green grass under your right foot. So uh, a growing muscle is very easy to, to injure. I'm so afraid when I watch these guys play uh, on the grass courts, I have to say. But uh, some guys decide to slide. Some guys decide not to slide. And that's also really, really interesting. It's very individual. But the footing, I think it's the most difficult part of getting used to grass, not the bounce. Getting back to your situation, because, you know, the question is that, you know, you won all the majors, but not Wimbledon, but you did win on grass because you won at the Australian twice on grass. So you won on every surface two times. We know that. Was it the fact that you could win in Australia on grass because you weren't coming off of a stint on clay just two to three weeks prior to that? Was that ultimately the deciding factor for you? Yeah, I mean, the courts were obviously much drier in Australia because of the weather. Um, So the bounce was immediately higher from the beginning. Um, That's the first thing. And then also, um, I mean, the clay court season is tough to come uh, onto the grass after only two weeks in our day. And in Australia... The season was such that we used to go over there for four weeks before and practice on grass. So you got used to it a little bit. Um, the, the big difference between now and then was then everybody served in volley. Literally every player served in volley on both serves, except Jimmy Connors, who served in volley at times, but he was able to play from the baseline. Uh, Bjorn Borg didn't serve in volley all the time, but pretty much all of us uh, served in volley on the first and second serve. And when you never do that, it's very difficult to be smart. It's not as simple as serve serve it in, run to the net, and then try to make the volley. You, you don't serve as smart when you're going for aces as when you're serving and volleying. When you go away from your patterns completely, it's very difficult to feel that. I think Pete Sampras suffered from some of that at the French Open. I think John McEnroe suffered from that at the French Open. They did their best with what they were good at, and it just wasn't necessarily a good backward game. Boris Becker, same thing. Stefan Edberg, same thing. Uh, and then you have me, never won Wimbledon. Lendl never won Wimbledon. We tried a certain volley, but we're obviously not even close to Edberg and Rafter and, and Cash. And then comes Andre Agassi and decides to not come to the net. Uh, and the courts were still fast when he did that. So, uh, I mean, imagine Agassi on the courts today. He'd be really tough to beat. But um, it, it's Carlos Alcaraz is throwing in a bit of everything. Servant volley, a drop shot. Uh, he takes a return early. You have choices today because it's a little bit slower. Or it's just that he's so damn good that he that he has more choices than we ever imagined having. And the way you describe it with you don't just serve and you don't just – but but whenever you would talk about Rafter and whenever you would talk about Edberg and McEnroe and Cash with the word clever seemed to always find its way into the description of how you would talk about those guys. And then when you talk about Andre, was it just as simple as the fact that where he stood to return serve ultimately altered what a servant volleyer was going to be able to do based on where that ball was going to be and then where they were going to be in the court versus where they were used to being. Agassi was the first person where 
you could hit aces against Agassi because he went to one side. He anticipated very early guessing where the opponent was going. Of course, the famous story with Boris Becker is that he looked at Boris Becker's face and then he looked at Becker's mouth and the tongue. (laughs) And he claims that when Boris' tongue was to the left, he was going wide in the deuce court. He was going down the tee in the accord. Is it true? Yeah, he thought so. But he picked a side very early. And because of that, it became very difficult to serve in a volley because he was there so early. He took the, the return so early. And then, of course, he hit it really hard. So I think he was one of the main reasons why why serving volleying became harder. Agassi changed the game of tennis. Then they changed the grass courts and they became slower. Well, as far as Agassi and Becker are concerned, leave it to a guy from Vegas <laughs> to be a master at reading the tells of a poker player as they as it would have it with, with – uh, with Andre, last question before we go to break. When you talk about Connors having the best return in the history of the game, probably until Agassi came along, how the hell did Arthur Ashe beat him in 1975 at Wimbledon, Mats? You're a student of the, the history of the game. I know you're a little young for that one. I actually ball-boyed for Arthur not two months prior to that match in Dallas at the WCT Finals and fell in love with the guy. I was already a big Ash fan. He won in Dallas, beat Borg in that final, and then goes to Wimbledon and, and turns the double and wins. How did he beat Jimmy, though? Well, I mean, honestly, he beat him by, by it seemed, coming to the net down the middle. Okay. And if you play Connor, someone that doesn't have spin on either side, if you come down the middle, then suddenly it's going to be really tough for him to, to hook a forehand short cross or even hook it around. The backhand, he was, he was so precise. He can hit passing shots. Um, so I think coming down the middle, it reminded me uh, of, of Yannick Noah beating me at the French Open because he d- did kind of the same thing. He came into the net down the middle, not on very deep shots. And, and Arthur did that against Connors. I think that's a play that's going to work today too because if you give them angles today, you're in serious trouble with the amount of spin they have. But if you come down the middle hard, I think you have a you have a good shot at uh, at not being passed immediately. But then again, they rip it so hard, it's tough to volley these days. All right, when we come back, we've talked a little bit about the philosophy of playing on grass and back in the day and, and in today's game as well. Let's talk about how that's going to affect some of today's players. And is there somebody that can even challenge Novak Djokovic? That will be answered when we come back on KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Hey guys, AZ here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and I am joined by Diadem Business Development Manager, Doug Mouch. And Doug, let's face it, pickleball right now is all of the rage. However, it hasn't been exactly a seamless transition of bringing pickleball in with some of the, the tennis clubs. And one of the pain points has been the sound of pickleball. And Diadem has really taken the bull by the horns with regard to some new technology that you guys have out that I think all pickleball players, tennis players, or people that have a concern about the sound of pickleball are going to be very excited. Tell us about it. This past November, we launched the Vice Paddle, and we knew it wouldn't be conforming to USAPA rules because it has the EVA foam in it. That EVA foam causes the paddle to have a little more of a trampoline effect, but our theory was it's going to help tennis elbow or pickleball elbow, help wrist issues. It will help people that need a little more power that don't have it. But the biggest factor that we have found that's helped many country clubs and communities is the noise factor. So this EVA foam 
the vice paddle, it really does not make any noise whatsoever. Just, it's a very solid noise, more of a tennis racket. So it kind of mutes that plastic wiffle ball noise to almost zero. So it gives you a little more power, in, in some cases a lot more. It's arm-friendly. It's audio-friendly. Where can people go online to find out more about Diadem's wide array of pickleball equipment and tennis equipment? Well, our website is diademsports.com. The paddle is the Diadem Vice. Go online, check it out. I'm Andy Zoden. Doug, thank you so much. We appreciate it, and good luck with all you guys are doing. Thank you, Andy. Really appreciate your time. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. And welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we are talking grass court tennis. And why would we not be every time you turn your television on right now, you're seeing bright green on your screen. And it's been some good stuff. And, Matt, when we went to break, you said there was something you wanted to ask me before we went to break. So I'm going to let you hit me with it now. Yeah, Andy, I'm interested because obviously you're a, you're a, a bit of a traditionalist, just like I am. Uh, you're just a couple of years older than me. Uh, we grew up watching Wimbledon, and pretty much everybody was serving and volleying. You knew when you sat down to watch a match, you were going to get two guys that are serving and volleying. It was predictable. With that comes points that end very quickly. When you sit down and watch Wimbledon today, and you see someone like, Carlos Alcaraz or Novak Djokovic uh, that play, or Unz Jabeur for that matter, someone that plays from the baseline and plays with finesse. Are you, as a tennis fan, missing the predictability of two guys serving and volleying pretty much every point? There was a certain flow to a serve and volley match compared to when Alcaraz throws one in every fourth point. But be interested to hear what what you think when you sit down and watch it. Well, when I sat down and watched it when I was younger, I was I was very much taken in like everyone else was, ultimately, by, by Borg McEnroe in 1980. I'd never seen anything like it. And I think it was the contrast in styles that actually drew me in. And even though Bjorn did get to the net quite a bit by comparison to what we would see from him on a clay court or even a hard court, you still saw two vastly different games and, and styles of creativity with Borg and McEnroe. I also liked the contrast in styles. I also thought that Patrick Rafter versus Andre Agassi provided for some highly watchable tennis. Then you kind of got to the point where you were like, it was really Pete Sampras that I think kind of put a blemish, if you will, on the reputation of the watchability of tennis at Wimbledon just by virtue of the fact that he could go an entire tournament without losing serve. And, and, and looking back on, I'm not sure he was taking a deuce very often in his service games. 
And so it was, it was brilliant serving. And if you played tennis and you knew how difficult it was to do what Pete was doing, you could have an amazing appreciation for watching Sampras, the server. It's like watching a pitcher throw a no hitter in baseball, but in terms of the rallies and in terms of the, the style and the creativity and the kind of thing that we enjoyed so much watching guys like yourself. I mean, obviously that was, that was great theater. We don't see enough of it. So it's such an exception to the rule anymore. It does take you back, but, uh, but, but I, yeah, I, I enjoyed watching the great serving volleyers, but I think my favorite tennis to watch at Wimbledon was when I would watch two guys that played completely differently. And I would say ultimately above all that rafter Agassi matchup was a thing of beauty. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think that the matches that were not good in those days, they were way uh, less watchable than a match today that is necessarily not that good because they're still hitting the crap out of the ball all the time. And then the big difference today, I mean, on the grass compared to clay, the players are much closer to, to one another because they're literally hanging out just behind the baseline. So if you've been watching the French Open or if you've gone there and seen it live, you realize that they're playing from about, well, 10 to 25 feet behind the baseline and at Wimbledon no one is ever behind uh, more behind the baseline than 10 feet except maybe Daniel Medvedev to return at times but everybody gets a little bit closer so when you see it live especially you realize like oh my goodness they're standing right on top of each other uh, and the ball is only traveling about what is a tennis court 22 yards long I believe that's all it's traveling on the clay court, sometimes when you watch Nadal play Vavrinka or Dominic Team in those days, I mean these guys were forty meters away from 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 one another, so a um, hundred and ten feet away. It's a big difference. So I think it's more uh, it's more watchable today because the courts are good. They're smacking the ball. The bounces are are clean, and then they're so close to each other when you watch it live. That being said, Matt, because I was thinking about Nadal right when you mentioned his name, and I thought to myself. Well, you know, Rafa certainly moved up a lot closer to the baseline, if not on the baseline, when he got to Wimbledon, certainly than what we would see from him at Roland Garros. Do you think that Rafael Nadal can potentially attribute his two Wimbledons to Andre Agassi for having watched that be, okay, this is where you have to stand if you play like us, us being Andre and Rafa, who you could make you know favorable comparisons to uh, in terms of their games if you want to, and to see Rafa move up like that may have that been a page out of Andre Agassi's book. A hundred percent, I think that watching Agassi um, do, and he might have watched Jimmy Connors, and that's why he was right. doing what he what he was doing. I think that what Agassi made people realize is okay, you're uncomfortable, but you still have to play to your own strengths. And I think that's what Rafa figured it out. He's not going to get a forehand that often, but he's going to play to his own strengths. And that's the big difference from, from our day. Well, I didn't really play my My strength was to stay back and hit backhands and keep the ball and play on the forehand. But I went away from that completely on serving volley because that's kind of what, what everybody did. So I think Ag- Agassi showed them, hey, you're still going to play your game and you just have to set up the points. You get one ground stroke, serve plus one or serve plus two, and the point's over if you're Agassi. And that's what Nadal, I think, figured out how to do. Federer 
clearly changed his style of playing on grass court when he beat Pete Sampras early on in his career. He served and volleyed nearly every serve. And then, of course, when we saw the end of Federer's career, he didn't really come in that much at all, even in the finals against Novak, Novak Djokovic when he had a couple of match points and one of the best matches of all time. So it, it has, I think players have changed. The bigger rackets have made it easier to deal with bad bounces from the baseline as well. Um, I always used to say, and people used to come, call me and complain, like, why would you say that? I used to say the level of tennis at Wimbledon was nowhere close to the level uh, on a hard court and even on the clay court because the bounces were so bad. So you'd seen guys shank the ball, not being able to hit through the ball. They're just trying to make shots. And I think that has changed today, too. I think the level today on grass is as good as on any surface, but it's grass makes it a little bit more more interesting and alive than uh, the hard courts, especially if you're there. We talked about Agassi versus Rafter. We talked about McEnroe versus Borg. If we go back to let, let let's go back to Borg, and because he won five in a row, and then you've got Pete, who was probably the next dominant guy. Although you could say that the Becker Edberg pair was pretty dominant they played a few finals each one two i think becker won what three stefan won two or maybe i've got that reversed or they both won and and then you then you then you get to roger and then you get to novak if you could have any matchup and give them you know equal technology advantages and what have you what and McEnroe, let's throw johnny mack in there as well just simply because of the fact that he was involved in those brilliant matches with borg and won one of them and beat down Connors one time like I've never seen a guy get beat down in a final, which was in 84. Who would be the ultimate all-time Wimbledon final that you could watch, start, starting with that board era? What two guys? Oh, 100% for me would be John McEnroe versus Roger Federer. Okay. Like, yeah, like it's not even close. Wow. I mean, to, see, to see those two with those hands and with the understanding – of what to do uh, with a with a tennis ball on a grass court. I mean, I think it would be unbelievably interesting. And on top of it, I think it would be a close match uh, if they had the same equipment, of course, and they were in the same era because McEnroe could play to his strength, which was straight into Federer's weakness, which is the backhand return or coming into the backhand. So I think that match would be just a, a highlight reel of uh, unbelievable points. So that would be really fun. I mean, I wouldn't mind watching Borg Nadal. That would be uh, extremely fun. Or Connors Agassi. Connors Agassi would be fun on the grass court too. But McEnroe, um, uh, Roger Federer, of course you can throw Rod Labor in there too. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one at you. Yeah, tell me. I think would be absolutely box office popcorn. They both won it seven times. I think it could, I think it could get chippy. I think you're talking about the best server of all time against the. I think Sampras Djokovic would be insane. Whoa. Right? I mean, come on. I mean, my goodness, because Pete would look over at him and it would be like Nolan Ryan standing on the mound and and then Djokovic would look at him and go, you know, you think you had problems with Andre. Wait till you get a load of me. I'm Andre <laughs> on steroids. Right? I mean, that would be – imagine those two getting after each other. That would be pretty fun, wouldn't it? No, that would be unbelievable. And, I mean, that is a match that most probably would decide this – this uh, debate that we always have, uh, which era was the best right. and are they better 
per day than before? And when did the switch happen? When did they really uh, uh, accelerate the level of tennis? I mean, to me, uh, Pete Sampras accelerated uh, the game uh, big time when him and Agassi came on. I think that Stefan Edberg and Boris Becker most probably accelerated as well because suddenly uh, you have two a huge server in Boris Becker and if you compare that to Connors and Borg maybe the, the game moved in in a special uh, in a direction I think that so Sampras Djokovic on the faster courts at Wimbledon that we used to have before. <laughs> They decided to do the Olympics in 2010 because one of the reasons they ah. they changed the grass at Wimbledon was because they needed the center court and all the courts to bounce back and be green again just a month, month and a half after Wimbledon was done. And then the Olympics was played there where Andy Murray beat Roger Federer in the finals. I was there. It was amazing. Wow. So they they then started using more of a rye grass. And a rye grass, the, the blade is a little bit thicker. And because it's thicker, they can leave it a little bit longer. Whereas when we played, it was a bent grass. So it was a skinnier grass and the grass was laid, would lay down so the ball would skid through. So so is that the main reason? I think Goran Ivanisevic and Pete Sampras, one of the last finals they played, I think they had a big say in it as well because I've seen the stats and the ball was in play less than two times on average uh, in the whole match. That's a serve return in, serve return miss. That was the average. So for a layman like myself who doesn't know, that it just by the way you're describing it, it sounds like the old version that didn't bounce back, that was the skinnier grass, if you will, was a putting green. Yep. And then the rye grass that was a little thicker was AstroTurf. Is that a, a basic kind of equivalent? That's exactly what it, the, the funniest thing when I – when I uh, when I get to Wimbledon and uh, and work for Eurosport and I start uh, first of all watching matches live right there and then you start hearing uh, the uh, men and the women start talking is the kick serve the kick serve works on a, a grass court the kick serve didn't work on a grass court uh, in the seventies and the eighties until the last few rounds then suddenly uh, if it was worn out then the kick serve but now the kick serve really works in fact it kicks so much that it doesn't really go forwards it nearly kicks and goes straight up uh then you have the other thing that's weird about Wimbledon when you hit a line Andy you know it's chalk well chalk is literally like sandpaper so when the ball hits the line and when you guys at home are watching it when when the serve or a shot hits the line you can see guys and, and girls, they can whiff the ball because the ball doesn't come to them. We all know what happens when you hit a line on clay or even on hard courts. It, it's, it's a quicker, faster bounce. So a lot of, um, a lot of adjustments that they have to make the players. And then you have to go what Jack Nicholas once said. He's never missed a putt. They haven't all gone in. But he's never missed a putt, and I think that's what you have to do on a grass. You just have to trust that the bounce is decent, and just sort of go through the motion and not worry about bad bounces because they're going to come. Well, I've whiffed the ball enough times on a hard court, let alone on the <laughs> the, the chalk of a grass court. But I do appreciate you uh, towing the company line with all of those references to the kick serve, as we are kickserveradio.com, and Matt. I guess I'm going to give you the final word because we're going to go to Johnny right after the break. But real quick, Novak Djokovic and Iga Svantec are the prohibitive favorites on the men's and women's side. Who's got a better chance of being upset, Novak Djokovic on the men's side or Iga Svantec in the ladies' singles? 
Oh, I think uh, without a doubt, it's it's uh, Iga Schwantek. Uh, first of all, because it's two out of three for the women, and the way that the the women play today, and the way that they serve, just look at someone like like last year's uh, champion Elena Rybakina. I mean, she's a huge serve, uh, and that's a weapon. So. Is she healthy? Uh, I'm not sure she's healthy, okay. but that style of tennis is, is, I think, what the women, even Petra Kvitova, who's having a great uh, lead-up grass court season, she's won it twice. Um, they have big serves today. So two out of three is very risky. Novak, three out of five. I mean, I think it's back to that old thing where they, he just knows how to play three out of five set matches. So I think it's easier. Uh, uh, it's not easier. Iga Swantek has to look out a little bit more for sure. Um, but uh, so Carlos Alcaraz, very quickly, I really enjoyed watching him at Queens because we saw uh, a variation of shots that, of course, he does that on any surface. He's still trying to play that same kind of thing, trying to run around and hit forehands, but he might hit even more drop shots. He's coming into the net more for sure. Um, so that's really fine. Holger Rune tried to play similar. Alex Diminar is a threat on a grass court. Not really. Uh, on a hard court as much, okay. and uh, not at all on a clay court, but on the grass court, because he moves so well and the bounce is so low, he's got a shot. Um, so I think that there can be some upsets, but Novak, Novak be really hard to upset him. But but who thinks that people should look out for when you watch Wimbledon? One thing, of course, is the all-white clothing, which I think is brilliant. I think it looks beautiful. And for anyone that owns a tennis shop, Andy, if you have all-white clothing at your club, Everybody will buy their clothes from your tennis shop. So that would be really, really good because they're not going to, they're going to go in and I need a white shirt. Andy, do you have one? White shorts, whatever. So I think white clothes. Got them right here. <laughs> Brilliant. And then the other thing, the video screen and music in the changeover, there is none. I like that. Wimbledon is quiet. It's no one is playing music. People are talking, of course, in the changeover. And there's no replays. There's no video screen. The only thing the screen is used for is scorekeeping and then the Hawkeye. Uh, and I believe they're having line umpires. I don't think they will ever go away from that is what I've heard uh, the rumors have told me, but they're still going to have Hawkeye. Um, and, uh, and of course, the doubles at Wimbledon. To me, watching Wimbledon doubles is easily the best doubles that you watch all year because it's so historical and all the great players have tried to win Wimbledon doubles. For Andy Zoden and Mats Vlander, that is segment number two. Mats is off to London now. Johnny Levine will join me next. We got more Wimbledon talk, more grass court talk, and Johnny and I are going to talk about will an American make a run? They certainly didn't do so in Paris. Will they do so in London? Stick around and see what Johnny's got to say about that and more right after this. Sarah Z here with a kick serve, quick serve with my friend and nutrition guru, Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say, more advanced or more experienced in our life, our fitness levels take a hit if we're not careful, don't they? You know, Sarah, they do, unfortunately. And I highly suggest supporting your activities at every stage pre-workout, intra-workout, and post-workout. So you want to think about a pre-workout. We have a product called Endgame, and that basically will allow you to increase your energy and focus during your workout. And then intra-workout is almost just as critical. So we have branched chain amino acids 
called BCAA 311. And that's a perfect product to allow your body to almost refuel while you're working out. It's a super hydrator as well as a muscle recovery while you're working out. And then finally, protein is critical post-workout and body fuse lean protein is one of the highest quality proteins on the market. Very, very effective, a slow, long burn, six to eight hours after ingestion and after that workout. So your energy, you're not, you're not going to crash and your energy continues. You're feeding your muscles and you just feel Great. So with these three elements, pre, intra, and post-workout, you're really going to support yourself at all stages in any activities, in intense workouts, tennis matches, body strength conditionings, uh, sessions, etc. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network, as promised. Now joined by two-time All-American at the University of Texas, Johnny Levine. And Johnny, Matt and I took pretty good care of all of the past great champions. We talked about uh, what might be... In fact, I'm going to ask you, we, we talked about what would be the greatest final you could see of any two players... Let's say starting with the Borg era, because, you know, Borg won those five in a row. I guess you could include Connors in there as well. But what would be the greatest final you could see if you were taking two guys, maybe from different, slightly different generations, starting with Borg and going through Mac and going through Pete and Roger and Novak? And what do you think Matt's chose as his dream final of any two of those guys? Here's Johnny. I think he's. I think he had to pick Federer as one of those two. Okay. I, I will give you that one as correct. And I would think, well, for me, it would be Sampras. I know okay. they played in the quarters, but that was very early on. I think that was around a 16 when Roger beat him in, was it 99 or 01 or something? I, I do remember that. That was around a 16 match, I believe. But thinking, you know, the Swedish connection probably would go Federer-Borg. He went Federer-Mac as the most enjoyable match because of the contrast in styles and what that would look like. Yeah. And I, you'll be happy to know, for the sake of the real sit down on your couch and get your popcorn ready, this is going to be a blood and gut server versus return. I went Pete and Novak. I thought Samp the Sampras serve against the Djokovic return and just who they were as people. Sampras, the steely-eyed, kind of like that Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan presence on the mound. I mean, how many times, Johnny, did Pete Sampras win Wimbledon and, and, and not drop serve? A couple of times, didn't he? Yeah, I think that that's definitely the one. There might have been a lot there for Pete to have to deal with because Novak is certainly going to have more weaponry with which to break serve. That being said, Pete certainly would have more weaponry with which to hold serve, and then it would just come down to kind of a, a, a will of warriors. And to me, that one, I, I wouldn't be able to miss a minute of it. Yeah, I agree with you. Right? That, that would just be unbelievable. I mean, 
it's hard not to put Borg in there, though. Right. You want to, and you think about, you know, how, and, and, and when we did, when we did talk about this, we, we offered the caveat of equal footing on technology. So they got to either, either one guy had to use the older guy's stuff or the older guy got to use the newer guys, you know, the younger guy's stuff um, and, and how that would work. But in either case, the Sampras serve versus the Djokovic return game to me and with those two personalities and how Americans would be rooting their guts out for Sampras and Europeans might be doing just the opposite on behalf of Djokovic. Uh, to me, that seemed like the most intriguing matchup of, of, of players and personalities. Okay. Now that being said, what we didn't really get to was the simple fact that as we go into this Wimbledon and this grass court season, the Americans are not coming off of a very stellar performance cumulatively on in, in the clay court circuit and particularly in the French Open. Obviously, uh, Austin Krychek's doubles win notwithstanding, and by the way, winning again at Queens with Yvonne Doding, so solidifying his number one ranking. So good for Austin Krychek, uh, 32 years of age and ascending to the number one ranking in doubles and can't say enough about him. But people care about the singles. And we have to wonder whether or not a guy like Taylor Fritz can repeat the performance that he had with making it to the quarterfinals and, and a, a narrow loss uh, at the hands of Rafael Nadal. Where's Francis Tiafo in the mix and, and some of these other guys. So overall is your expectation for American success on these grass courts of Wimbledon substantially better than what we saw in Paris? So, Andy, I think that the Americans have a lot to look forward to coming into Wimbledon. There's a lot of guys that are playing great tennis. And, um, you know, I, I'm a little surprised. Maybe Corda wanted a week off ah. before Wimbledon. But he had a great result in, uh, I think he got to the semis of Queens. And he had a win over TFO. I mean, that guy is a threat. He's playing great. And then you go into, you know, Mackenzie Mc- mcdonald at eastbourne now he's in the semifinals you know he beat uh fritz as we just talked about you know so and and fritz is obviously going to be a threat too he had a great wimbledon last year um and then you know ben shelton is is got a game for grass uh even though he just lost to uh chris eubanks so that speaks well of eubanks eubanks i think it was maybe Indian Wells or Miami, I can't remember where he broke into the top 100 for the first time. Better research next time, buddy. Uh, so he's he's on a high. He's playing great tennis this year. Then there are guys, Johnny, like a J.J. Wolf, who have, have the kind of weaponry. We saw him have a good run, certainly in Australia. Uh, we had that sort of that pod where he and Tommy Paul and uh, – all right, it was uh, it was Tommy Paul, JJ, and Shelton were all kind of in, in mixed in together, and it was Shelton, or excuse me, Tommy Paul that would bust out and make the semifinals. What about Tommy Paul on the grass? He was a little disappointing in the French, but you know, Tommy after making the semis of Australia, we're we're waiting on more from him. Is grass going to be a place where that might happen? Yeah, I mean, look, look, we know he's great on 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 clay, and he and he's played great, you know, on hard court as well at the Australian, but. You know, he's now coming into his own on grass. He's in the semis of Eastbourne. He just beat Wolf in the quarters. Okay. So both those guys are playing really good grass court tennis. So either of them could could break through. And, uh, you know, a guy like Wolf or 
or Paul, I mean, they could quarter, maybe even semi Wimbledon. You just, you just don't know. I mean, these guys are playing at such a high level, even a Shelton. There's a lot of great tennis that the Americans are playing. And, you know, you can't count out Francis Tiafo because he's going to be a threat on grass too, because of his athleticism. I think Johnny Fritz and Tiafo are sort of like, it starts with those guys, but there are other guys like that come to mind to me that are dangerous, that are sort of under the radar, like a Maxime Cressy, right? A guy with a monster serve like that, that you have these guys that have these monster games and we wonder when we're going to see Opelka back again. And Isner seems like he may be, uh, you know, uh, having a tough year and maybe it's going to be a lot to ask, but certainly Wimbledon has been, and you know, we, we all remember some of the, the classic matches he's had against Mahout and, and against Kevin Anderson, where they've gone forever into the fifth set. Um, but, but it just doesn't seem like there's the absolute flag carrying American player that this is the guy that we're pinning our hopes on. This is the guy, this is going to be the United States entry into the final four. We can almost count on it because I don't think we have that guy. Yeah, you make a great point. I mean, I've listed a number of these guys. I mean, that that could do well at Wimbledon: Corda, McDonald, Shelton, Paul, Wolf, Eubanks, TFO, Fritz. And then you you can't count out, you know, is John Isner because, like you said, with that serve on grass, I don't know that he'll get too far, but he's a threat. So you got a lot of guys that you know can do well, but is there one that you think can go the distance? I agree with you, Andy. I don't think there is. I think, Johnny, I hate to say it on behalf of American tennis, any of those guys are capable of going out in the first round. I mean, and then, you know, you have a guy like a Jack Sock, which the minute you stop talking about him, suddenly, you know, he goes out and gets a win or two, and all of a sudden you're maybe going, okay, here comes Jack Sock again. And then you you, you don't, you know, he doesn't win a match for a month or something. And so, um, but the guy that you mentioned that I had completely slipped my mind when we went on the air today that I think is intriguing, and I think he made it to the round of 16 last year and narrowly lost to Karin Hotchinoff in a weird fifth set with 8 million breaks in it, is, you know, obviously is Corda, because I think that is a guy that with his temperament and demeanor and his game, that's the guy that I would love to be able to to, to hitch our wagon to and uh, and to see him make a run because I think if he could get to the second week, that might be your guy that busts through and gets to the semis. I, I like Corda. Corda Corda definitely is one of those guys and and one guy we forgot that that has played some really good tennis can play well on grass is Brandon Nakashima who's sitting at fifty one in the world. He's got to be in the mix in with with those guys too. Garon, I don't quite think so. Cressy, you know, he definitely, I think, is probably in that grown category. But we're getting close, though, Andy, and it's a great crop of guys. It'll be really fun to watch these guys. And I got to believe one or two of them are going to break through and have a heck of a tournament. On the women's side, Johnny, um, you know, obviously we're seeing some good results from Coco Goff. And I always, it always starts with her, with me. And she, again, is one of those that, she gets hot and all of a sudden you start rubbing your hands together and you sit forward in your chair and you're like, okay, here goes Coco. And then all of a sudden she goes dark on you a little bit and doesn't kind of show up to the extent that you should. Same thing with Pagula. They get ahead of steam and and then they, you know, kind of seems like they, they slip on a roller skate or something and it, and it, and it just kind of, uh, you know, gets them off the rails a little bit. And for a couple of weeks they're, they're kind of, 
recalibrating their confidence. Would those be the two Americans, though, that you would have to start with with any kind of a, a run on the grass? Yeah, I believe so. You've got Pagula at four in the world, and you've got Goff at seven. So those are your two top tenors. And you got and you got Madison Keys looking good there too. And her game is danger. We forget about her, but if she gets hot and she gets going, she can slug. She's not Sabalenka, but she is maybe Sabalenka light. Yeah, I agree. I think Madison Keys um, hits the heck out of the ball. She kind of reminds me of Lindsey Davenport. Right with that game. Uh, definitely a threat on grass. Um, so we'll see what happens. I believe Keys plays golf now in the next round. So that'll be interesting. And then you've got Sloan Stevens and Shelby Rogers and uh, Danielle Collins at 48 in the world, um, you know, is, is a great player, great athlete. And then we've got this young University of Texas NCAA champion who's coming onto the scene pretty strong in Peyton Stern. So yep. maybe maybe she can come through and, and do well. Um, but you know, really when you, when you break it down, you're looking at Pagula and Goff uh, as two of the, the, the bigger names in, in, in worldwide tennis to do well at uh, Wimbledon, hopefully. Always nice to be able to give our Longhorn girl Peyton Stearns a shout out on behalf of Texas Longhorn tennis and just college tennis in general, an NCAA singles champion, an NCAA team champion, and now out there on the tour showing why playing college tennis is a good option as you would know as well as anybody. All right, Johnny, good stuff. I uh, want to thank Matt for joining us in the first couple of segments. You're out on the west, excuse me, on the east coast visiting the boys. you got three boys all living out in New York and all doing great. And um, we will be back after Wimbledon, everybody. Enjoy the grass courts on behalf of the great Matt Vlander, the great Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden. We're kickserveradio.com, and we are proudly part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. <laughs>